I think everyone needs a coach. I mean, mentorship and guidance have been incredibly crucial in our development as a company. So I thought I'd introduce you to some amazing coaches as part of this special series of Meet My Business. So on today's episode, we've got Clive van der Waffen. He's a leadership development trainer, facilitator, coach, and a TEDx speaker. Um, so Clive, before we get into it, could you just introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Cool. So yeah, my name is Clive. I'm based in Johannesburg in South Africa. Um, but I work with clients around the world, which is COVID did that to us. It opened up a whole new world to us. So I work predominantly as a trainer and a coach. Um, I do the odd bit of speaking as well. I'm mostly focusing on leadership and building relationships to be a more potent leader. In a previous life, I was on the ex of a financial to, uh, I was the head of people in development and worked in media and journalism before that. I've kind of bounced around and done so many interesting things that it's difficult to kind of narrow down what I am exactly. But right now in this iteration of my life, I'm training and coaching. So since this podcast series is aimed for coaches, you know, I want to tell the stories of coaches, by coaches, for coaches kind of thing. And I think what's always really fascinating is how you actually got to become a coach, because I don't think a lot of people even see that as a career opportunity when they're younger. It's something a lot of people build towards and realize over time that it's something that they can actually do. So give us a little bit of how you actually started becoming a coach. My journey to becoming a coach was interesting because it started off in the training sphere. So I was working in journalism. And while I was working for a publishing house, I started doing some training within the, the publishing house because there was no training department. So I ran with that. And when I started getting into training, I, I then connected with a company who brought me on as a trainer to train their material, but they offered coaching as well. And I really enjoyed the coaching space. I, and it was quite interesting for me because I'd always thought I was, would be quite keen to be a therapist, but I've never liked the idea of therapy being really just about recognizing patterns. I've really wanted to see something that was more forward focused. And coaching kind of answered that. It was such a nice kind of segue between my experience of therapy and moving into more forward focused um, activity and goal setting and, and mind shifts and limiting beliefs and all of that kind of stuff. So I then started pursuing uh, my coaching qualification and then worked my way to getting my international accreditation. And yeah, I work between being a trainer and a coach and they work quite well together. But it isn't something I thought I would be. I thought I was going to be, you know, something probably in a corporate somewhere. I never thought I'd be sitting on Zoom every day talking to people about business and leading. So what do you get out of being a coach, like personally? What is it that keeps you going in this industry? I suppose the sense of adding value. It is a real, I mean, coaching is difficult to get into because there are so many people out there who are coaches in various spheres and most people don't really understand completely what coaching is. So for me, it was never a case of I was getting into this to be financially, you know, it wasn't a financial trajectory for me. It was more around the fact that I get to really spend time with people and get to be a part of their journey and really add value as part of that journey. But also that I'm not there to rescue the journey. And I'm also, I step away from the journey eventually. It, it's nice being a part of someone's story for a small part of their lives so that we can get great results together. The modalities that you specifically focus on are transactional analysis and emotional intelligence. 
Can you elaborate a little bit more about what exactly those are and how you use them in your practice? So transactional analysis or TA is a psychological modality that was developed in the 50s, um, often called the psychology of human relationships. And it was developed by Eric Byrne, who was a psychiatrist and wanted people to get out of therapy quickly. And uh, he didn't like the whole psychodynamic process of people sitting for ages and ages in therapy. So what he did was he began analyzing people's transactions, which is their conversations. And TA is most known for its ego states, for the parents and adult child and assessing where we communicate from in terms of our um, other ego states and what response we get because we're in particular ego states. It ties in nicely with emotional intelligence because emotional intelligence says that we choose our response, which TA does as well. So they, they work very well together in terms of being able to say, well, how am I going to choose to lead someone effectively based on what I'm seeing in front of me? I use them because it's really about humanity and business. I was very tired of seeing people demotivated, disengaged, deflated. And there was a feeling that emotions needed to be left at the door when you got to work. And there was a sense of we needed to be robots. It was results driven. And what's so nice about TA and emotional intelligence training and coaching is, is that when you use these modalities, you get into how people talk to each other. I mean, some of the conversations that I've had have just really been about teaching someone to greet people in the corridor so they can become a person of influence in the business um, and you know, may- maybe get promoted because they're seen as friendly and add value to the business. And it's as simple as that. So it's about really getting down to the basics of what does it mean to be human? How do we communicate with each other? And how do we do it in a way that we get the best results from the situation that we're presented with? Yeah, I must say, because I, in the last, just over a year now, joined the corporate actual world for the first time and rejoined the non-remote work world for the first time in a long time. And I must admit, trying to figure out the social dynamics in a work environment doesn't feel necessarily natural, especially if you're not a super social person like myself. Just, you know, getting familiar with people tends to take a lot longer for some reason in the work environment. And I think there's something about being in an office that somehow makes certain people feel like they have to act differently than they do in their normal world. And I guess there is an element of that. But trying to thread that needle and figure out how to actually just be a human Seems like it would be easy, but it clearly isn't for a lot of people. Oh, you're exactly right. It's because also work is, is a place of, of underlying fear because, you know, we, our boss can fire us. You know, what people think is important. There's political terrain that we have to navigate. There's competition that goes on. So it's a different environment in terms of, of kind of what we present. It's, it's almost can be persona driven. So what I try and do is work with people to kind of contract is what we call it in TA as to how they're going to relate to other people. And part of it is, is actually saying, well, this is how I relate to other people, telling people that this is how you relate to them and seeing how they respond. It's about showing up authentically in the relationship. And it is difficult, especially after COVID and kind of going back into the space. It's an interesting time because it's a reconnection that needs to go on. And that connection is almost somehow, there's some people who kind of are a bit like, oh, I so preferred it when I was working remotely. I didn't have to greet you in the corridors. 
And then there's some people who are completely gregarious and they've been dying to get back. So you've got to navigate between these two extremes. But if we know what's in front of us, and I recognize that you are either of those and respond in the appropriate way, I'm going to have a relationship that's very quickly one where we connect at the appropriate level that we need to connect. So you mentioned contracting. Like, yeah. can you give an example of what that actually means? Can't quite wrap my head around it. Contracting in TA, there's three different kinds of contracts. There's the professional contract where, you know, kind of this is what we're paid to do. But one of them is the psychological contract. And before any engagement, so for example, whenever I meet a leader, I always say, what is the psychological contract does he, she, or they have with their team members? Because what we need to do is we need to contract the psychological aspect of our relationships as well. So part of that is, is some managers, they come to me and they're like, oh, Clive, you know, I don't want to be a nice guy. I'm not that kind of guy. I am emotional. I am passionate. I am, you know, it is something that I just, you know, fly off the handle and, you know, I don't know how to change that. And part of it is we can be working towards behavior change, but part of the contract is saying to people, this is how I manage. And when I do get emotional, it's really not aimed at you. It's aimed at the mm -hmm. fact that I'm passionate about business. So I'm contracting so that people know where I'm coming from in the space. I also contract with the team member to say, how do you want me to manage you best? What happens? Do you like constant feedback? Because some people, each of us are different. We're all different human beings. So if I contract individually, psychologically with each person where appropriate, I'm able to navigate the relationship within that contract. And we also then can recontract because some sometimes things happen. We you know kind of have a bit of a a fallout or whatever it is, and then we recontract how we're going to to speak to each other and show up in each other's presence. So it's like truly like setting terms to be like, when you see me not responsive in the middle of something, it's not because I'm upset. It's because my brain needs me to hyper focus on this for a second, and then I'll get to you. And it's just exactly. explaining the way your brain works to other people, the way you process these social dynamics, I'm already thinking about how I can implement that in the teams that I work in because I haven't necessarily always communicated how I think, if that makes sense. My brain processes things in a certain way. I get anxious for very specific reasons. And if I don't communicate that A, that makes me anxious, and that B, this is how I react when I'm anxious, people might misinterpret what I'm actually saying, how I'm actually coming across. That That's really fascinating. Actually, laying out the terms of this relationship because i mean we had spent so much time with our colleagues so you sometimes see your colleagues more than you do your family and i think we are more likely to contract these kinds of things with our loved ones because you know it's important and you with your partner you got to really make sure you're on the same page and all that kind of stuff but we don't always take that same energy into the work environment and i think that's that's fascinating so with the with the work that you do, do you think that a lot of this stuff needs to come from the top down? I mean, you work mainly with leaders. Does this kind of work need to come from the top down so that employees can feel like able to do it themselves? Yeah, it helps when it's from the top down hugely. It's significantly different. Um, so often I get called in to help the problem team or deal with a leader who might have certain issues. And the problem is, is then we're not looking at the individual in the systemic. 
And often people are responding to the system as opposed to just necessarily responding because that's who they are. So it is difficult. And, and usually when there isn't buying from the leaders, I'll wonder sometimes if I'm going to take the job or if I can still add value in with the team that I'm going to be working with and what kind of influence that'll have. But nine times out of 10, if I'm doing any kind of team coaching or training, I will always be asked if their managers are doing this kind of training as well, because transactional analysis speaks about that in order to thrive in a relationship or in any situation, you need to have structure, which is what we were talking about, the contracting, you know, but also just, I need to know what date my salary is going in, all of those kind of things. We need to have stimulus. We need to like our jobs or at least, and, and I think the research that Marcus Buckingham was saying, we need to like at least 20% of our job for us to feel stimulated. And the third thing is recognition. We want to be recognized and valued. We don't just want a salary. And so what happens is when I start speaking to team members about these three things, they immediately say, well, yes, I need to do this. But does my manager, is he going on this training or is she going on this training? Because I want them to recognize me. So it does, if it starts from the top and we kind of you know, ripple it down, it's, it's, a much, it's a much easier process. TA is also a language of connection which is why it's so powerful because it, it, you, it, it's not a loaded language that you learn. So when everyone is speaking the same language, it's very helpful, especially when you're doing things like contracting, recontracting, you know, where the, you know, you're saying to someone, I need you an adult now, which is what you were saying. Sometimes I don't have time to connect with you. So I can walk up to someone and say, I'm going straight to task. I don't have time to connect. Is that cool? And then that person knows they need to shift into a space that's, not expecting you to give them the attention that they might have felt they needed in, at that moment. You're contracting with them as to how that, that uh, engagement is going to take place. That's, that's honestly so fascinating. The idea of actually prefacing a discussion with where you need them to be or where at least you're coming from and where you'd like them mm -hmm. to come from in the same way. And it, so I'm just thinking about this now in my entire life. <laughs> Not just from the work environment <laughs> place, but I think I'm definitely going to start trying this out, just even in my personal relationships as well, to be like, listen, I'm in panic mode. I'm in get things done mode. Mm -hmm. I'm in whatever mode. Can we be on the same level? And if not, like, that's fine, you know, but this is what I need from you at this moment. That's, well, at least this is where I'm coming from. And that is so just important because... We're meaning makers as human beings. So what we do is we put our meaning on it, your interaction. Whereas if you tell me what the meaning of our interaction is, I'm not psychologically creating a story around it. I know that you're coming in because this is the why behind it and this is how you're feeling. So it creates what I call containment. We want to contain relationships. We don't want them bouncing all over the place. We want, you know, and people kind of going from, you know, a huge highs to huge lows with each other. And when we contain those relationships is when we tell people where we're coming from or where we're at beforehand and also check in to see whether they're ready to receive the information mm. you're giving them. Because sometimes, you know, I'll be talking, I'll be on a computer right, typing things, someone will start talking to me and I'm not hearing a thing at all because I'm in flow in a different ego state. Whereas they are expecting me to be able to listen. And what we need to do is be able to contain that and say, are you ready for me to give you this information? Um, or, or if, if not, when can we? Yeah. Meaning makers. That's fascinating. I just maybe think about 
how with texting, I always use like way too many emojis because I'm so nervous that the person on the other side is going to misinterpret my meaning. So I'm always putting smiles, exclamation marks, et cetera. And then when someone like, uh, say for example, my father messages me with just like zero punctuation, zero anything, I'm like, oh, he's upset. He surely must be upset. But it's that thing of humans just adding meaning when they don't have it, right? They just assume. And then based on your own personality, I think humans tend to sometimes assume the worst, ascribe that meaning. And that's what a lot of coaching is about, is actually saying how much of it is true and how much of it is our story. So often the interactions that I see which have gone south or where people aren't getting along is and Adele for the story. What meaning have they put on to? And sometimes it is. It was a text that just said, you know, please, can I see you? And the person, oh, no. or can I see you? And the person didn't say please. And this has become a huge thing in a person's mind, and that's fine. But it's often about those kind of being able to to let people know what your meaning is and the intent. I also, it's, I actually send voice notes now. Yeah, um, so much I easier. Mini podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah. That times two button has been one of the best yeah. things WhatsApp's ever done. Um, so what I'd love is if you could maybe give me an example, you don't have to name names in any way, but of a team that you've kind of stepped into and have coached and you know where they were before you coached them, how you guided them and what the result was afterwards. I'll talk about a team I'm working with at the moment. I've been working with them individually. Um, and coaching the various team members who are a part of this, this management team. And then for the first time, we had a get together situation where all of them were present in one room with me and we could start kind of speaking about what, what was happening. When I first started working with them, there was a lot of story going around with each person almost like a political kind of they felt like their manager was was making them vie for his attention and playing them up against each other. And we investigated whether that was story or whether it was true. And a lot of that was story. Doesn't mean that it you know it didn't aff- affect them or it might have been his his intention, but it was never explicit. So it was story. It was purely that. So it was about getting into adult and saying, well, what are we really there for? And we had the session together where what I did was I made them all contract how they needed to show up for each other. And the manager was there to also contract. And we were able to work through, he was able to say, this is why I do things. He didn't ever say I'm going to change because of this. Although we've seen change since then, because it's just the nature of the way it happens. But he's explained where he's come from. And the it just shifted the entire dynamic in the team. It released fear and anxiety because their story was creating that fear and anxiety. And what we've got now is we've got a team who are at least prepared to start communicating and they've got a language of communication. So they're able to say, for example, the one operations person, she kept saying, I tell them what they must do. I tell the ex girl what they must do and they never listen to me. And we go into ego states and that's a parent ego state that's being critical and possibly bossy, which means that you're generally going to get a child response, which is either submissive and says yes when you mean no or rebellious. So she's been experienced this rebellion from her. And that's because she's been going to speak to people who are her superiors as a parent and they're responding as a child. So we've had to work out how do we get 
everyone into an adult space. So they're focused on the task, the emotion is taken out of it, and the appropriate responses are chosen rather than it being this reactive space. So ultimately, the main point that, that you're getting across here is that you've got to recognize that the person in front of you is a human. It seems very obvious in retrospect, but I think, especially in the working world, it rarely happens, I think, unless people actually put effort into it. Some people tend to be better than others, but broadly, broadly, it's something that requires work, right? I think to, to take it a bit further, I think we need to recognize that there's a human in front of us who has a story about a situation, person, business, whatever it may be, but it's different to ours. Because so often we think that people are on the same page as us. We think that someone is as passionate about a project as I am. We think that people understand that, of course, if I'm telling you to redo it, it's because I want the best from the presentation and for you. We don't know that that's what the person is really hearing and, 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 what, and the meaning they're ascribing. So it's that kind of empathy thing, which for me is not stepping into someone's shoes. It's accepting that someone has a story that's different to yours. So it's being able to walk in and say, I know that this presentation, for example, is very important to me, but it might not be important to you. So I can't put the same urgency on you. And we often have that where someone comes running in and says, I need this done now, now, now. And you've suddenly got to take on their urgency. And it's about contracting that urgency. It's about contracting that delivery. So that's not done out of resentment because in ultimately you're going to get a better product at the end of the day, because someone's doing it with a sense of being involved in the process of delivery, as opposed to being told what to do, or that someone's assumed that they're in the same space that the other person is. Ultimately, it just leads to more buy-in, right? If, if I see you, you just by human nature see me back, and we, we it's a seen relationship, and that's all I, I've worked with call centers right through to Exco's. And so much of it's just about people wanting to be seen and whatever that means for them. But it is more than the delivery. It's about that recognition space. Brilliant. Clive, if anybody wants to get a hold of you or perhaps follow you on social media, how do they do so? Well, LinkedIn is probably the best. Just look for Clive van der Wachen and um, you can follow me there. I am on Instagram as well as Late Night Clive, but then you're going to see a lot of my dogs and me um, lying in bed. Or else my website is www.readypeople, ready as in I'm getting ready and people.co.za. Awesome. Links will be in the description. Fantastic. If you've been thinking about starting a podcast but don't really know where to start, go to our website, Baird.media. That's B-A-I-R-D dot media. You can find the book, Become a Podmaster, everything you need to know to master the art of podcasting. And you can also sign up to one of our mentorship programs where we help you figure out, develop and produce your show from start to finish.